Welcome to episode 169 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with Lydia Creech and Jessica Carr. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be beginning our new series, a series on the archers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. So... My web search turns something up for us on the archers, Michael Powell. What? Have a look. <laughs> Hold on. My, my Siri's talking to me real quick. <laughs> Is this a gag? Are you doing a bit? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll leave that in. It'll be nice. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. Very good. I'm glad um, I was here for that. <laughs> Thanks, Siri. Uh, all right. So, yeah, we're going to be doing a, a series on The Archers. Our first movie in the series is going to be 1943's The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in part two. Let's go ahead and dive into part one. Uh, Jessica, you have two new releases that you want to talk about. Why don't you first tell us about the uh, much the bigger blockbustery one? Right. Oh, which I'm which I'm introing yes. for you. I yes. forgot We're because you because you outsource your intros like Jesse does. Um, Thor Ragnarok. It is the latest in the Thor franchise. The the third one. It is directed by Taika Waititi. Uh, it's written by like six people because it's a Marvel movie, and it stars Chris Hemsworth as Thor, Tom Hiddleston, Kate. Uh, and uh, Idris Elba and Anthony Hopkins return, Kate Blanchett, Jeff Goldblum, Tessa Thompson, Mark Ruffalo, Carl Urban among the new faces in this one. And according to IMDb, it imprisoned the almighty Thor finds himself in a lethal gladiatorial contest against the Hulk, his former ally. Thor must fight for survival and race against time to pre- prevent the all-powerful Hela, 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 Kate Blanchett. From no, I'm gonna call Emo it uh, from destroying his home and the Asgardian civilization. Jessica, what were your feelings on Thor Ragnarok? Okay, so I would like to preface this review with the fact that I think that Marvel movies are fine, and I enjoy them, and I'm usually entertained by them. I've seen the Captain America movies, the Avenger movies, all that stuff. But I was most excited for this movie because of my boy, Taika Waititi. And it's really funny because um, when I was talking to some like Marvel fanboys about this movie before I saw this, a lot of them were like, yeah, like this Thor is going to be funnier than all the rest because it's it's done by this, I don't know, this like New Zealand director or something. And I like stopped them and I was like, wait a second. Like, it's Taika Waititi. Like, you need to see what we do in the shadows. You need to see Hunt for the Wilder People. And so it turned into this whole conversation about why they should go watch other Taika Waititi movies and not really about Thor. But overall, I think that Thor Ragnarok is probably the most genuinely funny of any Marvel movies that I've ever seen. The opening of it is just, like, it has classic Taika Waititi humor in it. Um, what's interesting about it is that they have two narratives that are going on in the film. So you have kind of the larger narrative with Thor. And um, Hela comes back, who's apparently his sister. And she's the goddess of death. And she comes back and is trying to take control of Asgard 
because she wants to conquer more places in the universe. And so you have that kind of conflict going on in the, on the outside. And then the inner narrative is Thor and he lands on this planet where Jeff Goldblum is the grandmaster and they have kind of like these Colosseum type fights that are going on. And so there's like conflict in that narrative that goes on. The, to me, the more interesting narrative of the, of those two is the one where they're fighting on the planet because it, it is where Taika's humor shines through the most. Um, people, this isn't really a spoiler because I feel like people have read a ton of articles about it, but Taika does the voice of one of the characters that fights in the Colosseum, and it is hilarious. And he was my favorite character. And probably the most frustrating thing about this movie was the fact that I just wanted to see that character in a standalone movie. I didn't really care about what was happening in the outside narrative with Thor and Hela fighting. Uh, and that's probably the number one problem that I had with this is that it's still kind of stuck to a standard Marvel movie plot with the the main story. The ending was super predictable. And at the end of the day, I was less concerned with what was happening with Thor and more concerned with what was happening with Jeff Goldblum on the <laughs> space planet. Um so those are kind of my issues with it, but it is, it's super colorful. The costumes are amazing. Space Goldblum is exactly what you would expect it to be. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like I'll have more to, I'm going to hopefully see this this weekend. Um, I think I'll have more to see. I'm curious though, to see the balance between the Taika-ness and the Marvel, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like the like the the standard Marvel stuff that they have to get out of the way. Uh, I you know I, I'm I'm I feel like though. I mean, out of all the movies though, I would you say that this is one of the high points? Not you know not just because Taika is directing it, but also just because that there's this overall jovial, much more laid back quality to it, rather than it being this somewhat self serious you know giant superhero epic yeah that does make it better but towards the end it still does that you know marvel universe thing where it's like hint hint like infinity stones you know thanos is coming like that kind of thing and that honestly they got on my nerves because it kind of disrupted it like took me out of the experience because i was like i had to think back to to other movies and like try to figure out how things were connecting and what this really meant Cause I, and and it was interesting because I saw this movie with Jesse and Andrew and Jesse has not seen any Marvel movies (laughs) that are trying to follow the Marvel universe. Like she, I was like, she was whispering me questions during the entire time. And she was like, why are they all dressed up in like old timey clothes in Asgard? And I was like, are you serious? And then like Dr. Strange popped up and she was like, who is that? I don't even understand what is going on. And I just had to look at her and be like, Jesse, please, like you, you have to stop asking me questions. But I still think, and she, but she enjoyed the movie the most out of all of us. So I still think that you can watch this movie and enjoy it without seeing all of the other Marvel movies. Like it still makes sense in some way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, I'm curious to check it out. I'm sure again, like I said, I'm, we're going to talk, I'm going to see it this weekend. So I'm sure we'll talk about it more um, then. But yeah, 
probably but, uh, oh and kudos kudos to taika for putting in what we do in the shadows reference in a marvel movie because that was amazing yeah very cool um, all right, well, uh, let's let's move to the other new release, but this one uh, vastly smaller in scale. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, fl- oh, again, outsource the in- intro. We're going to talk about the Florida Project. <laughs> yeah, you have to do the introductions. I'm sorry, I keep, I keep, you know, I assume that people will do their own jobs. Um, the Florida Project. <laughs> the Florida Project is directed and written by Sean Baker. It stars Brooklyn Prince and Willem Dafoe, among others. And according to, again, according to IMDb, it is set over one summer. The film follows precocious six-year-old Mooney as she courts mischief and adventure with her ragtag playmates and bonds with her rebellious but caring mother all while living in the shadows of Disney World. Uh, All right, Jessica, take it away. Okay, so the Florida Project is, overall, it was a very beautiful and and really heartbreaking film. Kind of when the film ends, you, it's one of those films that you have to think about after you leave the theater. Um, The movie takes place at a motel called Magic Castle, so it's just outside of Disney World. And you see Mooney with her mom, and they live out of this motel. Every week, her mom is trying to figure out how to pay for the rent for her to stay at the motel. And Willem Dafoe's character, he's the maintenance manager at the motel, and so he you see him kind of like try to do everything that he can to help them out in this situation. I'm, I'm always amazed at, at how Sean Baker can turn ordinary people into just amazing characters that you really want to spend time with. There's something super poetic in how he shoots these characters and how he builds their story. There's a scene where Mooney and one of her friends are, passing an ice cream cone back and forth and it's during the summer so they're trying to figure out things to do and they stay they stand at this ice cream stand and they just ask people for money because they don't have any and they end up buying one ice cream cone and then splitting it between each other and so they're sitting in the motel and they're just passing this ice cream cone back and forth and it's dripping because it's super hot and then it cuts to Willem Dafoe's face and he's watching them as they're passing this ice cream cone back and forth. And then they spill a drop on the ground. And he's like, okay, it's, you got to go. You got to leave. You got to get out of this lobby. And it was, it was really funny. It was really sweet. There are a lot of colors in this film. The motel where the kids are staying at is painted this pastel purple color. And whenever the kids are just leaning up against the wall of the motel, it makes for a really beautiful shot. Um I think with this film, I think that Sean Baker is really kind of finding his groove, his groove as a filmmaker. Um, I think that he really captured everybody's attention with Tangerine. But I love how his his films focus on friendships rather than romantic relationships. I've seen three of his movies so far. I've seen um, Starlet tangerine and now the Florida project and all of them have revolved in some way around two characters and kind of their their intimate friendship and he's really able to capture the essence of these characters and what makes them work as friends and I thought that that was really great Mooney as a character Brooklyn Prince does a really amazing job but her character is kind of is kind of hard because she is a brat. Like you, when you get to know her character, she is absolutely terrible. Um, 
and she is really good at roping the other kids into doing some pretty bad things. But then when you start to spend more time with her mom, Haley, who's played by Bria Venate, um, you start to realize that it's it's kind of a cycle. Like Bria is also well, Haley is also really good at manipulating people to get what she wants. And, and Mooney has kind of taken on that trait also. Um, and the, the movie is just really good at, at capturing, I guess what a lot of people don't get to see, or they, uh, it never really comes to the big screen, like these kinds of stories. And a lot of people have compared it to American honey because it, it kind of shows you another side of America that a lot of people haven't seen. I think it's really interesting because um, whenever I went to the theater to see this, I was talking to the concessionist and he asked me what movie I was seeing. And I said, Florida Project. And he was like, yeah, it's so beautiful. It's really great. And he's like, and then you just realize like, those are real people. This is a real story. And I mean, I guess I, I knew that coming into it, but I guess for other people, they're not used to seeing people struggle and, and people who are in poverty. So it's really great that Sean Baker is, is finding an outlet to showcase their stories. I feel like the, the film's pretty universally uh, beloved, at least so far this year. Um, I have seen a couple readings of it that say that it feels like, um, like a kind of poverty porn where it's like this, this almost, idealized um you know built structured view of poverty that um that i guess chips away any of the real aspects that people who live who, who are in this type of lifestyle like anything that they actually deal with and feels more like a for lack of a better word hollywoodized version of it do you do you see that do you agree with that do you, or do you feel like that's maybe that they're kind of missing, you know, the point of the Florida project. Yeah, I, I feel like they're they're kind of missing the point because there are consequences for these characters. It's not like they're just, you know, living in this motel and, and things aren't happening. Like there are obvious negative consequences that you see with the decisions that Haley is making as a mother and how it's negatively impacting her child. And the ending is a little bit interpretive. I'm not going to spoil anything, but it plays off as more of like a dreamlike sequence, but there, there are consequences that do happen. So I, I don't think it is, I don't think it's like making poverty look better in any way. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I haven't seen the movie, but I, I've just seen that interpretation, uh, you know, on Letterboxd or wherever. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like that might be, who knows? <laughs> I feel like that might be that might like they might be missing the the, uh, the the boat on the on the movie. But again, I haven't seen it, so I had no no clue. Um, all right. Well, the Florida Project. Good line of questioning, though. Yeah. Um, the Florida Project. It's in theaters now for most uh, in most places. But uh, yeah. 
Um, the last movie that we're going to talk about is another new release. I caught it last week. It is Call Me By Your Name, the latest film from Luca Guadagnino. Uh, he came, his movie from last year was A Bigger Splash with uh, Tilda Swinton and Ray Fiennes. This one comes from a book of the same name uh, by Andre Ackerman, and it takes place in northern Italy in 1983, uh, and it follows the story of Elio, who is the 17-year-old uh, living with his mother and father at this um, this house in Italy. His father, played by Michael, uh, uh, Elio is played by Timothy Chalamet. His father's played by Michael Stuhlbarg, and is this. Uh, I'm trying to what is it, like, kind of a kind of an archaeologist, uh, a professor, and he every summer he has somebody come and, and stay with them and help him work on his on his summer project. And this year, his research assistant is played by Army Hammer whose uh, name in the movie is Oliver. Uh, and, you know, they uh, they get feelings for each other. And then, you know, stuff happens. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, moods of, the moods of 80s Italy, um, you know, to overcome them. Uh, but yeah. No, it, Good explanation. I thought so. No, it's it, it's you know it, it kind of takes place over the course of this summer and and these two characters interacting with each other. Elio, it, like I said, is seventeen years old. He's kind of um, at that at that um, middle point between between uh, youth and young adulthood and 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 just kind of having to make. Uh, much larger decisions uh, at, the, at the time he has this uh, it seems like they're friends but she also is this on again off again girlfriend uh, her name is uh, Marzia and he, he's kind of dis- he's kind of trying to uh, you know figure out what you know what the what he kind of wants to do in terms of, re- of a relationship with her but he also seems kind of reticent with that um, and then you have this this figure Oliver who comes in the Army Hammer character and he he's instantly just very confident. Um, he Guadagnino shoots the kind of open the, the first sequences that you are kind of ha- with Elio interacting with Oliver and he has this um, kind of poppy music behind and they're just going they're going about different things throughout the day whether it's getting breakfast or going to the town and, and visiting different shops and Oliver is just very he, he there's no there's no questioning involved he he kind of just does he 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 does what he wants to do he he picks what he wants to pick and he moves on he says what he wants to say and it and it doesn't seem like he has much regret much uh but you know he he just kind of he he just he goes he goes about his his way in a, in a much different sense than than Elio does um and it's kind of I, I think that that kind of helps with the casting of Army Hammer he is this very brooding very strong very uh you know strong-chested person he he kind of lifts himself over all of the other characters just in terms of his stature um and that's it, it, it kind of you know, works as a gateway for this character who is very much the same way up, up, above both Elio and just the other people that they're interacting with. Um, I think that th- this one is def- is getting a lot of uh, looks. At, you know, as a possible like Oscar movie, I think that it kind of is is they're piggybacking it off of the success of Moonlight last year as this other um, gay drama. Uh, 
but I think that they're also vastly different movies while um, you know th- while this one definitely has this curiosity and these this character kind of um, understanding and coming to terms with himself uh, I think that you know, Moonlight is a, is a much more moody, much more dreamy, much more colorful movie. This one uh, feels, you know, much more. It, it's it it doesn't it I I feel like it doesn't um, lose itself to those kind of dreamy, hazy moments that that Moonlight does. You know, in Moonlight, you have those moments where the light is you have this pink and blue light drip you know draped over everybody you have this you know this kind of haunting almost uh you know curious score behind it and and call me by your name is is much more is much more peppy much more poppy um it moves it moves around um in a much different nature i think it's just a it's it's a completely different movie and that's kind of i it's it's kind of nice uh, you know i i liked uh guadagnino's movie last year a bigger splash for the most part i think it has this third act that uh, it kind of loses you. It, it completely changes the course of the movie. It kind of has this whole 180 that I didn't really go along with. Um, this one doesn't have it. This is a much happier movie. It's a much um, breezier movie. You have these kind of side performances by, by people like Michael Stuhlbarg that are really charming. Um, and the movie itself is charming. It's very lush. It's very it's very European. It's very Italian. You know, you're it transports you into this into this time period where, um, and and all nobody's really accomplishing anything all day. They kind of just lounge around and read and play music and eat fruit, um, and do other things with the fruit. I'll just say uh, vaguely. <laughs> but um what does that mean you'll just you, you'll see the movie you'll understand what i'm talking about there's a there's a scene with a peach that uh let's just say rivals the american pie pie sequence um but yeah i i i, I don't know i i would like to watch uh call me by your name again i think that the 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 first viewing was fine but i I don't know. I, I I wasn't able to connect on all of the different um, emotional beats that I was wanting to 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 kind of hit me with. It, I think that Chalamet and, and Army Hammer do a fantastic job. There's this very emotional um, speech that Michael Stuhlbarg gives uh, Timothy Chalamet's character at the end of the movie that honestly should get give him they should give him some award i don't know just give him like the 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 you're a great actor michael stuhlbarg award because it's it's just this very moving um just this very moving speech that he gives that just kind of sh- shakes you a little bit um but yeah i i don't know i it, it just it never it, i don't think i was 100 percent behind this movie but at the same time i'm not against it i think i i, I just want to i want another viewing with it i think that there's still much more to to pull from it um but overall i think it's i think it's solid it, it should be coming out in the next few weeks and um i recommend it if you if you really like those kind of lush uh those you know those kind of lush european dramas where it just drops you into this you know 
undisclosed place in Italy or France or something and, and lets you interact with these characters as they kind of, you know, lounge around. If you're into those kinds of movies, Call Me By Your Name is like the epitome of that. I have a question. Okay. Do you think that the Swaffords are going to think that this movie is gay enough? <laughs> because Jesse's um, main complaint last year of Moonlight was that it was not gay enough. So, do you think that Call Me By Your Name is gay enough? Well, I think I think first it's it's kind of a hard question to answer since they are not here. The the first thing I would ask is how like how you define gay enough? Like, what's your definition of gay enough? Because that kind of seems like a uh, almost borderline offensive um, statement in itself. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, like, what to do with that. <laughs> you know, but I, I, I mean, like, does does the does the does the drama not satisfy you unless you have like this this like openly graphic, you know, sex sequence or something? It's not, you know, it it's not the the whenever the characters have sex it does they you know it, it does cut back and forth you do, it's not like it's showing much of anything um but yeah i don't know i don't know what they're i don't know what her what, what she's looking for with that it seems kind of to, to me like a um I don't know I, I don't i don't i don't know what to do with that honestly <laughs> but, <laughs> I guess yeah. they're just gonna have to watch it and come on the podcast yeah, I don't know. and Honestly, say. Honestly, that's almost you know. I, again, I think that's almost a little offensive. Like, this is not gay enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll wrap up part one. We'll be back uh, in a minute talking about the life and death of Colonel Blimp from 1943. So stick around. Hello, Cemetery listeners. This is Andrew Swafford with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company, and because we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, uh, because the algorithm gods tell us that reviews increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Cinematary at Yahoo.com so that we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you think I'm an idiot for not liking Singing in the Rain, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie that you really want to hear our opinion on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we'll read them out and respond to them on future episodes of Cinematary. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we bring to you guys every week. So to recap, uh, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
episode 169 of Cinematary. This part, uh, Liddy and I, we're just going to go, we're going to go the duo. Two people. Just us. We got it. Jessica's left. <laughs> Jessica's left. Um, we're going to go with two people and we're going to start our series on the archers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Uh, we're going to be leading it off with the, their 1943, what is it? Two hour and 40 minute film, the life minutes. and death of Colonel Blimp. Yeah. It's, a, you know, epic. Uh, like we said, it's written, directed, and produced by The Archers. Uh, the cast includes Roger Livesley, Deborah Kerr, and Anton Walbrook. The film follows Major General Clive Candy from the Boer War to the uh, Second World War. And the film's title derives from the satirical Colonel Blimp comic strip by David Lowe, but has no connection to with the story itself. The comic, they just take the name from the comic strip and and. and Candy kind of looks like Colonel Blimp at the beginning. Other than that, I will say I was no confused about who Colonel Blimp was. Well, I was like, yeah, when, where, kinda, when yeah, is this it, happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were kind of you assumed it was. I almost thought it was going to be like an Apocalypse Now type situation where you know it'd be. But anyway. Um, according to the directors, the idea for the film did not come from the newspaper comic, but from a scene cut from their previous film, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, in which an elderly member of the, true, of the crew tells a younger one, quote, you don't know what it's like to be old. Powell has stated that the idea was actually suggested by David Lean, then an editor, who, when removing the scene from the film, mentioned that the premise of the conversation was worthy of a film in its own right. Powell wanted Lawrence Olivier, who previous appeared, previously appeared in their films 49th Parallel and The Volunteer, to play uh, Clive Candy. However, the Ministry of Information refused to release Olivier, who was serving in the Fleet Air Arm from active service during World War II. Uh, in 1970, Powell recalled the extraordinary, discu- extraordinary discussions he and Pressburger had with the Ministry of Information. Quote, they said, we don't think you should make this film. We replied, go and fuck yourself. <laughs> They said, "All right, but you can't have Lawrence Olivier. You're going to ha- you're going to stop us uh, from making it. Oh no, we're not going to stop you. After all, this is a democracy. But we advise you not to make it, and you can't have Lawrence Olivier because he's in the fleet air arm, and we're not going to release him to play your Colonel Blimp." Uh, Powell wanted Wendy Hiller to play Kerr's parts in the movie, but she but uh, Hiller pulled out due to pregnancy. Further problems were ca- caused by Prime Minister Winston Churchill, who prompted by uh, objections from James Grigg, his Secretary of State for War, sent a memo suggesting the production be stopped. Grigg warned that the public's bl- belief in the, quote, blimp conception of the army officer would be given, quote, a new lease on a, a new lease of life. After Ministry of Information and War Office officials had reviewed a rough cut of the film, objections were withdrawn in May of 1943. Churchill's dis- disapproval, though, remained, however, and his insistence uh, and he, his insistence on an export ban um, much exploited in advertising by British distributors remained in place until August of that year. At about the time of the premiere, Churchill was said to have confronted Anton Walbrook backstage at the West End Theater, where he was appearing in the play Watch on the Rhine. Uh, Churchill said, what's this film supposed to mean? I suppose you regard it as great, as good pop propaganda for Britain. Walbrook reportedly replied that only the English, quote, would have had the courage in the midst of the war to tell the people such unvarnished truth. Churchill remained unconvinced. <laughs> Although the film is 
strongly pro-British. It is the, it is a satire on the British army, especially its leadership. It suggests that Britain faced the option of following traditional notions of honorable warfare or to, quote, fight dirty in the face of such an evil enemy as Nazi Germany. There is also a certain similarity between Candy and Churchill, and some historians have suggested that Churchill may have wanted the production stopped because he had mistaken the film for a parody of himself <laughs> since he himself had served in the Boer War and the First World War. Uh, Churchill's exact reasons remained unclear, but he was acting only on a, on a, a description of the planned film from his staff, not a viewing of the film himself. The film was shot in four months at Denham Film Studios and on location in and around London and at Denton Hall in Yorkshire. Uh, filming was made difficult by the wartime shortages and by Churchill's objections leading to a ban on the production crew having access to any military personnel or equipment. But they still managed to, quote, find quite a few army vehicles and plenty of uniforms. The story is that they just stole them. <laughs> Michael Powell once said of the uh, of the movie that it is quote a 100% British film but it's, photo- it's photographed by a Frenchman it's written by a Hungarian the musical score is by a German Jew the director was English the man who did the costumes was a Czech in other words it was the kind of film that I've always wanted to work on with a mixed crew of every nationality no frontiers of any kind at other times he also pointed out that the designer was German and the leads included Austrian and Scottish actors the military advisor for the film was Lieutenant General Sir Douglas Brownrigg, uh, whose own career was rather similar to Candy's as he had served as, with distinction in the First World War, was retired after Dunkirk, and then took a senior role in the Home Guard. The film was heavily attacked on release, mainly because of the sympathetic pr- uh, presentation of a German officer, albeit an anti-Nazi one, who is more down-to-earth and realistic than the central British character. <clears throat> The film provoked an extremist pamphlet, The Shame and Disgrace of Colonel Blimp, by right-wing sociologist E.W. and M.M. Robson. Uh, In the pamphlet, they they called it a highly elaborate, flashy, flabby, and costly film, the most disgraceful production that has ever uh, emanated from a British studio. The film was the fourth most popular movie at the British box office in 1943. Due to the British government's disapproval of the film, it was not released in the United States until 1945 and then in a modified form as The Adventures of Colonel Blimp or simply Colonel Blimp. The original cut was 163 minutes. It was reduced to an an 150-minute version, then later to 90 minutes for television. One of the crucial changes made to the shortened versions was the removal of the film's flashback structure. In 1983, the original cut was restored for a re-release much to Emmerich Pressburger's delight. Pressburger, as affirmed by his grandson Kevin McDonald on a DVD feature, considered Blunt the best of his and Powell's works. In 2002, Roger Ebert said, Rarely does a film give, such, uh, give us such a nuanced view of the whole span of a man's life. It is, uh, it is said that the child is father to the man. Colonel Blimp makes poetry out of what the old know, but the young do not guess. The man contains both the father and the child. Uh, Scorsese at the time of the re-release said, Every time I revisit the life and death of Colonel Blimp, it grows, it becomes richer. With every passing interval of time, and that's what the film is about after all, it seems to have become more resonant, more moving, more profound. You could say it's it, that it's the epic of an ordinary life, and what you retain from the, this epic is an overpowering sense of warmth and love and friendship, of shared humor and tenderness, and a lasting impression of the most eloquent, eloquent sadness. On that note, um, yeah, I, I I do agree with that last point by Scorsese. It is a very sad movie. It's a it it, it ranges. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. It's the, it says the life and death of Colonel Blimp. I guess spoiler alert. Um, Candy doesn't die. You, you know, he's still very much alive at the end of the movie. Um, but I. 
On the commentary track, Powell's so funny. He's like, audiences always take the title so literally. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't actually die. Yeah. He just changes and, I don't know, becomes better, I guess. It's a symbolic death. Yeah. Well, yeah, give me, uh, what, did you, what did you think of this movie? Was this the first time you saw Colonel Blimp? Uh, first time I'd seen Colonel Blimp. Um, we were talking before the podcast, actually, and my first impression of it, just taking it at face value, was just it's a very British film. It felt very kind of like droll and self-depreciating. But you're right, it, it, it does shape up to be really quite affecting and you feel so bad for Colonel Candy by the end of it. Yeah. Well, it's 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 one of those I think that um yeah, it, 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 it was I, when I watched it and I kind of finished it, I liked it well enough. But then I started kind of reading interpretations of the movie and, and, and reading a lot more about the background. And I, I grew this appreciation. Um, I read this piece that actually just recently uh, and, and Lydia did also that recently appeared in reverse shot about the movie. And it talks about how it, it kind of messes with time. And I kind of wanted to start there okay. um, because the movie begins and it's um for for lack of a better term it's present day uh where you you, it's it's kind of confusing because you're following these this group of soldiers it's you know you know right in the midst of world war ii and they have uh you know that it's these young soldiers they want to go off to they want to kind of you know start start fighting hitler but the the whole mantra is war starts at midnight <laughs> and so they 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 all come back to london and they try to arrest clive candy because they're like you know we need to be we don't need to be they're you know following dirty. Yeah, we need. We, yeah, the, the Nazis aren't fighting the way we are. We need to get on there. We need to, you know, be like them. We can't follow these old traditions. And um, he and the the, the soldier makes. Uh, well, I think what sets Candy off, which you know leads to him tackling him in this Turkish bath, <laughs> is that he makes the. You know, he's he's you know he 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 says something along the lines of. You know, I you know I don't know how you got, you know these marks. I don't know how you got that you know that mustache. And in in Candy kind of goes, you know I'll, you know I'll show you how I got these marks, and I'll show you how I got this mustache. And it has this wonderful, um, has this you know this incredible transition where it's like it's just Candy a jumps move. on, yeah, Candy jumps on top of the of the of the young soldier, and they're fighting in the bath, and the camera pans up, and then it sits there for a while, and then it pans a little down, and a young Candy. Andy emerges from the bath and it picks you up in 1902. Um, you know, what, 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 Lydia, what did you think of kind of how it transitioned through time? There's a couple instances we can, we can bring up some more examples as we talk, but I'm curious how you thought, you know, how, what, what, what did you think of how, you know, Powell and Pressburger moved along time without, you know, with a lack of like, you know, I'm thinking of the old movie way where like the, you know, the, like the, the calendar. calendar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, because the time span of the film covers forty years, and that's a lot to mm-hmm. pack in, even into two, a little over two and a half hours. Um, and so, two things they do that are really pretty interesting are like the makeup effects on uh, live live. Mm, who's the actor? Oh, uh, Roger Livesley, or Livesey. Roger Livesley, uh, kind of like 
doing like receding hairlines and gaining weight and you kind of visibly see him aging. And then also when they have to do these like big time jumps, you go from like 1902 to the first world war to the second world war. And (laughs) it's these great sequences of when candy gets sad, he goes hunting (laughs) Yeah. And you just that bang and a like trophy taxidermied head appears on his parlor wall. And I guess they also have like a sequence of the scrapbook flipping between World War One and World War Two and like suddenly yeah, the pages like a, stop. Yeah. Because something Well and I'll, and then like well I just sorry to interrupt, but also you know, they also have like when somebody dies, it'll you'll see a newspaper clipping of like the the formal announcement. You never see them actually die or you never see them like in a hospital bed or something like yeah. that. Well they did that with when his wife died and then like the the rest of the scrapbook didn't get filled in. Which yeah. is like such good visual storytelling too. Yes. <laughs> and it's way better no, than just calendar. <laughs> We're exactly, actually getting yeah. information out of it too, and we're and we're getting information about the hunting too, because it's like larger and larger, more exotic animals. Well, there's a lot of that. Pal and Pressburger do a fantastic job of just telling this story in such a visual, cinematic way. Another example I think of is the is in 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 the 1902 portion when he first um, when with Candy first uh, comes into contact with Theo, who is the Anton Walbrook character, who will come up. Um, you know who who come who will come up, you know over and over throughout the, re- the the rest of the film. You know they have this this forty year friendship, but the first time they uh, they you know that the, they they meet each other, they end up getting into a fight and, and proposing a duel, and they have this duel in this like looks like almost a abandoned gymnasium. It's a gymnasium, yeah, yeah it's, and, it's like a training camp or something. Yeah, and they so and they spent a lot of time setting up and preparing the duel. They spent a lot of time of them like, you know, getting ready and, you know, sharpening, the, you know, getting the knives ready and, and picking, you know, what they want to do with their sleeves and all this stuff. And then they stand, you know, there t- at attention or whatever, and then they start commencing the duel and they start fighting a little bit. But when they start fighting, the camera pans, you know, all, like way up and they don't ever show you like what happens with the fight or, you, you know, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, instead, they, 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 they pan out almost and it cuts to it, well then cut it just it moves to the carriage outside where the Edith character is as well as the other friend of Candy's and you react to the fight not by actually seeing the action you react by how she's kind of reacting to the whole situation which is such an interesting way of approaching this kind of you know you would assume very important monumental scene in the movie no that sequence is actually really interesting because the fight really isn't that important. I, I thought all the lead up stuff was really funny, actually, and just kind of like making fun of these aristocratic, pompous like ceremony and rituals. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's, it's just ma- the, it's making fun of the of the like circumstances the, that this is even happening yeah, ri- because exactly. it all started because Candy is so pompous and he insulted like an aristocrat, and then the aristocrat has got this other stand-in to duel for him, and it's. <laughs> pretty silly which i know edith's character like upbraids him about the head for like before it all happens <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like yeah you should be ruder well, it's, 
Yeah. Well, I just, I, I just, I, I, you know, deeply explained that scene because I thought they, they do that a lot where, um, it, you know, it, it, and they make they make the point in the in the piece that I was referencing earlier where the the way they they manipulate time in this movie is so is very unique to other movies because um, by the end of it. I think the sadness that you that we talked about at the beginning that you have for 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 Candy is is more he kind of has this revelation that he's lived but he at the same time he hasn't lived you know it's like he it's it's like he has these moments that he that he in these ideals that he latches onto and he holds so dear but the world's constantly changing around him and he's having to loosen those and in in kind of the world saying that he has to kind of drop those in order to move on yeah i um, think that and so i th- and i think and i think that's what makes the, the those memories so effective is because it kind of just glazes over and, and and passes on what you would assume would be such the the focal point i think the death of Colonel Blimp that actually happens is suddenly realizing the weight of all this time that has gone by. Cause, uh, the final scene, he's like looking out where his house used to be at, cause it got destroyed in the blitz. And it's just like, Oh no, I've, and he's talking to Deborah Carr's character again and like trying to offer like a piece of olive branch to the young guy who attacked him in the Turkish bath. Yeah. And, it's like who is who is her boyfriend. Uh, boyfriend or whatever yeah and it's kind of like i hope i was like him one like suddenly realized like oh that used to be me and i was too proud to learn anything and i don't necessarily know if the young boy like that's the tragedy right <laughs> like that kid's not yeah, gonna the... take the dinner or whatever yeah well that's what well, that's what he says is that he had a similar situation and they in where he talks about in, in 1902 he had this whole thing happening in berlin and he comes home and he's kind of, and he gets in trouble by his commanding officer because he the commanding officer told him that he shouldn't go to berlin um and uh, at the very end, his commanding officer goes, would you like to come to dinner? And he says, no, no, I have an engagement. And he was like, I kind of regret I should have taken that dinner. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the, that's the tragedy of the film is that, um, and, 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 and the Anton Woolbrook character, the Theo makes this point later in the film when he's talking to Candy after he's bumped from appearing on the BBC to talk about, uh, Dunkirk, I think. And he says, you know, it's, and, and can, I think Candy makes it to him as well, where it's like, you know, when we're young, we don't know as much, but we have so much more energy. We're so much more, you know, uh, uh, excited to, to kind of, you know, get into the, the brush of everything. And when we're older, we, we have much more understanding. We, you know, we have all this knowledge, but we're not at, you know, we're not wanted to, uh, to use any of it. It's like, it's like you've accumulated, <laughs> it's, you, you've accumulated all this experience and knowledge and you get to this age where you're not, you know, required anymore. Nobody really wants you wants you to use that. And yeah, that's that's the that's that that's what makes this such a sad movie because it's just yeah he he um I I think that we come at a at a at a odd angle because we're definitely on the kind of youthful side. We're we're on this we're on the we're on the angle where we're kind of the nineteen oh two candy where. You know, I think that yeah, we lack the insight of somebody who's been doing the, been doing something for so long. Um, and I think that we're probably a little cocky and we think that we we know we know things. But um, 
Yeah, I think that that, that that's what's so what? effective about this movie is it is it has this understated um, yet very poignant uh, observation on life. I think like Candy's character in Evolution is really and it's the focal point of the film, but it's also contrasted with like one character. I mean, it's several characters with one actress. Yeah. Who doesn't change and evolve at all. Yeah, let's talk about Deborah Kerr's character. Um, real quick, I wanted to read a little bit from uh, this essay in the from the Criterion Collection uh, by Molly Haskell. She's talking about the movie, but she has this uh, this part about um, these couple paragraphs about Deborah Kerr, who yeah plays three different roles in this movie. She says Powell was in love with Kerr when they were making the film, and one feels uh, delicate shadings of chemistry in every scene between her and Powell uh, surrogate uh, Livesey. Uh, indeed, there's a kind of special uh, sur- surreptitious charge between and among all three actors. Powell wrote that in the course of making the film, quote, "I learned from Anton what an artist is. I learned from Roger what a man is. I learned from Deborah what love is." But Kerr, lovely and wistful through with inner strength deserves special note the subtlety and wisdom of her performance the shifts in register as she changes persona too little have has been said among the many superb writers on this film almost no one i know of with the exception of penelope andrews in the huffington post has paid much attention to kerr or to powell's women in general andrew saris is another exception having confessed that one of the reasons he came to appreciate colonel blimp preferring to even citizen kane was the centrality of a woman of a woman and the quote redemptive romanticism of the recurring and thus unquenchable love between the Kerr and Livesey characters. Kerr is there to express Powell's ideal, but also to challenge romantic idealism. The downside of which is, of course, that the courtly lovers fail to see their idols whole as having an interior life, as creatures who prick, irritate, and defy even as they love. Candy is a hero, generous, manly, and brave, but like all heroes, he is somewhat obtuse, impervious to the ambiguity, uh, ambiguities of life, baffled by sensibilities that can't be reached by old, good old British common sense. Women are a foreign planet to him and as such uh, can remain as opaque and beautiful remain an opaque and beautiful mystery he doesn't quite hear the rumblings of feminist resentment which is <laughs> and, and you definitely feel that because in 1902 he meets edith the first deborah kerr character and he they, they kind of they, they kind of argue back and forth you know she she def- is expressing all of these suffragist kind of notions and challenges him on on the kind of because he makes some point about you know a woman's place is at the home and she definitely challenges him on that and um yeah i mean lydia what, what did you think of, of kerr's performance and how she's shifting between all the different uh the you know the different personas the different characters i think what's actually really interesting about is she didn't necessarily disappear into the three roles but i think if you weren't paying that close attention on a first watch through it'd be like easy to miss and it's kind of incredible mm-hmm. how like her costuming and the way they did her hair and her makeup and the way that she acted like each character she plays is a different character uh so you also then what am i trying to get you kind of get at this idea that maybe candy is just seeing Kerr in these different women yeah just a little bit like and well, that's, uh, that's what that's what i'm trying to I'm, I'm i'm wondering like what did you think you know just do you see it as this kind of like 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 molly haskell says like you know he's trying to it, it, this idealism or do you think that they are in any way are are Powell and pressburger kind of challenging romantic idealism I 
because the, because she you know yeah you have the, he meets the first kind of Deborah Kerr character and then the only reason he marries his wife who is the second one is because he thought it was the first one um, just possible. because of the striking resemblance yeah. yeah and then the third one is this driver who he kind of you know she talks about how he picked her out of you know these thousands of women or, or, or thousands of candidates or whatever like 700, 700 candidates <laughs> but you know and so, but you, but you could you figure out what the reason was but yeah I mean Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you know, do you, do you think that it's that it's idealism, or does it in any way challenge the romantic idealism? I think it's challenged a little bit because uh, Murdoch, his like Scottish driver from World War One, yes, uh, kind of has this throwaway lines like, uh, "You thought you saw that girl at the movie theater," or to, like kind of implying that Candy sees Deborah Carr everywhere, and so he's like searching for it and maybe just wanting it into being and also when he's so excited to show off this portrait of the second Deborah Carr character that he marries to Theo Theo's like I don't really know (laughs) totally because Theo has married the first her the first character the one that because Candy you know interacts with her and and, and they seem to kind of be an item when in 1902 when he's in Berlin but then at near the end of his stay Theo is like oh I would like you know you never see them quote falling in love but at the end he's like you know I was was definitely in love with her and, and so they kind of go off to get married and do that and then when Candy gets back, he has this little, and Lively really acts, you know, really, you know, does a great job of portraying it. But you know, he has this moment where he realizes that he was in love with her, and he actually goes to a, like when he gets back, he goes to a to the theater, and they're watching Ulysses, and he uh, he, takes- he he goes with her sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's poking fun at him, right? Like he's very sad and disappointed that she wasn't Edith. And it's just kind of like, what it, it's a little bit gentle. Like, I think Paul and Presbury are very gently being like, what did you expect? I think you're being sentimental and stubborn because he is. And he couldn't admit to himself that he's taking the sister out because he wanted to date Edith. Uh, you know, and it's only until he gets some perspective on life. He's like, Oh, that's what I was doing. So I think it is a little bit challenging it, uh, but it is really good casting to have the same woman, but I don't necessarily think it is like, it's not this like angelic manifestation thing. Yeah. It's That's not a little like, yeah, bit too not... like magical uh, for this movie. Yeah. Um, I, I, the next thing I wanted to ask about is, is kind of Colonel Blimp as this, um, you know, life, you know, life following epic. Um, Andrew Saris, you know, talked about comparing it to Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane is, you know, kind of a similar thing where you you follow Charles Foster Kane from his, you know, well, from his death to, you know, to then to life. But, you, you know, bring yeah. it from life to death, you follow Charles Foster Kane. Um, you know, how, how do you compare, you know, Colonel Blimp to movies of that nature of these kind of where you follow the character from beginning to end? Do you think that it's effective in in hitting all the points of, of you know, over the lifetime? Well, 
I don't actually have a lot of movies like that to compare it to, but I was listening to the commentary track, and this movie actually had a really profound effect on Scorsese's Raging Bull, which is kind of the same, like, young Ray LaMotta the boxer, and then his life and trials, and then old alcoholic. Didn't learn anything. Ray LaMotta. LaMotta? Anyway, and I thought that was a really incredible kind of comparison and just hearing how inspired Scorsese was by these time eclipses and he talks about how he structures the first boxing match to be like the fencing he cuts away from the fight it, it's all in the preparation and lead up and so I think when you're doing my point is like when you're doing these long life epic stories you have to find a way to kind of elid time and Citizen Kane kind of invented the March of Time newsreel thing which is now a cliche and then Powell and and Pressburger managed to avoid that in a really clever way and I think most films maybe don't avoid that slip but Raging Bull was pretty good yeah (laughs) well it's just with, with Colonel Blimp it's funny because yeah it it never it's not like you have these you know almost portrait moments of of the life you know it's if you if you know wanted to have the the great moments of his life like on a you know in a row of pictures i think it would be tough to kind of find those it seems like we're always seeing him in the in-between because when we pick up with him in 1902 he's just got back from the boer war like he it's not like we're you know we never watch him actually in battle and the same you know and so we and then we watch him kind of have this this whole thing happening in berlin and he gets and then we're you know moving forward to world war one and in world war one it's the very end of the war we catch him at this very the very last moment he goes into the convent and has the whole uh, has the meal with with the the nuns and sees the Deborah Kerr, uh, the second version of her character, but and then and then you know after that we pick up and he's getting he's getting married to her, and then we pick up again and it's uh, you know much it, it's again it's much later it's we're always kind of in the we're in the in between of, of we're never in the yeah. you know largest moments of his life and i think that that kind of makes it more interesting because i think you find that's much more a much more effective way of telling his story and finding and being able to understand him more as a character just because you under you you learn more about people's character in those small moments in those in between moments than you do in the more profound you know quote-unquote picture moments of somebody's of somebody's lifetime that's where life life happens i guess (laughs) It's not necessarily big events. That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> I put on I put on letterbox the the young are brash, the old are not needed. In between his life, that's my poetry. Um, yeah. So as as we kind of wrap up, any any closing thoughts on on Colonel Blimp and and just kind of some thoughts on how Powell and Pressburger, you know, how their movie making skills as we enter this series about yeah, them? Uh, not a whole lot to say about this, but I think Powell and Pressburger mastered Technicolor just as a format. I've only oh, so ever beautiful, this movie. seen Red Shoes. That's, uh, but that's a gorgeous movie, but like Colonel Blum just looks so good. The palettes are like really striking. He, puts like Deborah Kerr in like these red and blues 
when she's the Edith Hunter character, and it just pops off the screen, and but not like in an obnoxious way. So I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of their films. I think this is going to be one of our most beautiful series. Yeah, no, I totally agree that the the Technicolor use plus it's in that like go, that good period of like. Like the 40s and 50s, the use, like the color is just so, oh, it's so good. Because I, 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 when I've been watching like late, this is a, a vastly different, you know, well, not vastly different, but you know, but, but I've been watching like late Ozu movies and, he, you know, he was making movies around this time and the use of color, it's just, there's something much more. The way they like do their palettes like, is, yeah, I don't know the if it's cleaner just, or just, what, but. Well, it's, it's like. It's like the colors pop much a little bit more. It's it, it and they're not like overbearing, but they just they feel much more pronounced than just if it was something normal. And and I don't know. To me, I really really like it because it just seems, it seems like there's much more of a purpose in having that color there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. So I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the rest of this. Yeah, uh, I really liked Colonel Blimp also as. And Lydia, you can you can chime in also, but I liked it as a war movie. Um, I think okay. you know naturally, maybe this is just how I align you know personally in my feelings toward war. But I I I just liked how you know it, there was always this kind of snide you know satire to how they portrayed military might. Um, even at the beginning, uh-huh. you know these soldiers are coming in, and you has this like kind of pulpy big band music you know bum, 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 when, when they're you know it's it's that's almost silly <laughs> it, it doesn't make them you know it's not like it's not like you know the 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 long deep serious chords of like you know saving private ryan where it's just you know very very epic very uh dramatic sequence it's like bum, 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 you know while they're driving into london um I don't know. I, I I thought that it's it's. It, I don't think it was ever like disrespectful of the military. You know, I, I, it just. It wasn't it, necessarily no, like glorifying. It, it but it wasn't. Though. Yeah, it, it just wasn't giving them the level like, of respect that they wanted. <laughs> to, it, it wasn't disrespectful, but it wasn't giving them the level that they wanted, and I I thought that was. I could see how Churchill might have yeah. not been real amused by that. Exactly during the height of World War Two, well, and that just that just struck out. To, that, that just kind of put you know poked at it to me in in a time when you know especially when it comes to our war movies that we're getting today you get stuff like american sniper and thank you for your service and stuff like that which seems almost more like it's like extreme jingoism yeah, sort of and so it's just and like this wasn't what this no, was no no this is a really smart movie um no i really liked it i'm very very excited to continue on with the with the movies of the archers uh because I, I wasn't sure about this one. It, you know, we started out with the the long two hour and forty four minute you know war epic, but I, I I would I'll say this: if you haven't seen Colonel Blimp in the and I think that the if the running time kind of scares you away, I I really would recommend it. I think this is the it goes by pretty it does. quick. You don't really I, you know. It. I hundred percent agree. I, I I stopped at one point just to get something to eat, and it, I was already I had like an hour left or something. I was like, oh, it it, it, it very it, once they get to uh, once they kind of pick up with the young Clive Candy storyline it kind of picks up and you forget really how the what the what the runtime is but no I would really recommend this if you if you can it's on it's on Filmstruck it was I real I really really yeah, liked it I, I will say it held my attention way better than Predator which is a much shorter <laughs> movie and put me to sleep See, there you go <laughs> 
forties. Because those are definitely comparable. Forties, two hour and, and forty four minute war epics. British, you know, war epics much more much better than than Arnold Schwarzenegger Vietnam homage action movies. All right. Um, well, yeah, that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on on social media. We're at Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on, at Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Next week, we'll be continuing our series on The Archers with 1946, A Matter of Life and Death. So Lots of lives and deaths. Lots of lives and deaths. We're, we're getting all the lives and deaths out early. Um, if you want to see the, if you want to see the other movies that we're going to be talking about in the series, we have them on on cinematary.com. You can check out the the rest of the picks homepage. on the homepage. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't think we have anything else to All plug. Right. So yeah, I guess uh, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>